For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today. Uh, so, hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined by Gavin Bain, who is a Scottish rapper, writer and, and screenplay writer as well, Gav. So thanks very, amongst many other things, may I say, thanks very much for, for coming on. <laughs> thanks, man. The list would be, you know, the list is, is that, those are the nice things that start getting into the kind of depra- depravity further down the list, you know, but we'll, we'll leave it there. <laughs> I always find these things interesting when I get guests on and I try to describe what they do because there, there, there's so many things to people's, you know, persona and in person that you, you probably couldn't list them all but you know you, you've got an amazing story Gavin and I'm sure we're going to touch that but I think you most people know you from the the Scottish rap duo Syllable and Brains mm-hmm. uh, which has almost taken over a, a significant part of your life is that fair to say? It's a strange one because essentially I was I created Syllable and Brains in like 1998 and it went till 2005 before it imploded the end of the, of the story. And then I, <laughs> I kind of like became a, an artist through that process, you know, um, and then had this career as a musician and then doing all these other things and becoming like a, an artist across the kind of entertainment spectrum. But um, it's so strange that one little thing in your life can, you know, but that, I guess that's the beauty of it is that, you know, in marketing and um, in brand building, they tell you make a bang. You know, yeah, yeah. and we were told that you would never sell like you, you guys will never make it. No one will ever want to hear Scottish rappers. We were told that, that we didn't have a story that was worth telling. And then we've went and lived a story that like just keeps going around the world so many times. I got a message the other day from my cousin in New Zealand saying like, oh, I was on the plane and it was on New Zealand air, you know, oh, really? and so it's like. It's every country just keeps going around and then it like awakens in a new country, whether they're seeing the Vice thing or the documentary or they're reading the book or whatever. I always get these, the fans always then hit me up and I get like, whoa, like inboxes just like fill up and it's like, hey man, like you changed my life. And I'm like, oh Jesus, like it's just a small, this the small matter of my life, you know, but has kind of um, in a really cool way, uh, if anything, the best thing is that it's like maybe a walk in a journey in someone else. Like someone sees it and um, they go, oh man, like I, I need to get out of this shitty job. Like I need to get out of this town that's killing me. I need to get out, you know, I'm just going to go and take that journey. And that, that was it. That was really, <laughs> you know, for me, I look at it like, wow, you know, like if that's done that to someone, that's, that's magic, you know. So for those that, that don't know the story, Gavin, uh, it was yourself and your, your friend Billy, both met in, at university in Dundee, uh, started a, a rap group, and at first you were rapping in a Scottish accent. And, and from what I take from it, uh, you've seen an audition or an advert for an audition in London saying, will you be the next Eminem? What can you be the next Usher? And you guys went down to the audition. I'll let you take it from there because I don't think I would do it justice. Yeah, it was, are, are you the next Eminem? And... Um... We, we had kind of like had a style develop out of rhyming with friends who were like, there was only one other group. There was another group, but we never really met them. The first group was called Ran Clan, but we never really 
like I knew one of them and I've since met another one of them, but like um, they weren't really active. And then there was another group called Melod Elements and they had seen us doing it, but they even said to us like, well, your style's a bit too American, you know, even though we had like a kind of Scottish accents, we were doing it in a very American style, like that kind of like humorous punchline style. Um, and one of them I remember had said like, it sounds too much like Eminem. And we hadn't, I hadn't heard it. We, not, we were like, who? Emma what? Like Eminem's the sweets, you know? And they were like, this was like 1998. So it was just before his single, or it was right about the time the single dropped here. And um, he wasn't like massive, but there was a, a thing building. And, um, and we, I remember less going into like HMV and like sharing the headphones back and forth. And just being like, oh my God, this guy's so good. But he was doing so, so much of what we were doing, like the style that just, that we were freestyling for people in our canteen, just making everyone laugh. Like we said, we knew like the way to get an atten- attention is to make people like, oh, you know, like of laugh at every action. Developing punchlines became our style. So, um, so in a way it was like a nice thing when someone said, oh, it's a bit too much like Eminem. And that, but then it was also like, ah, oh, we need to go. They also said to us like, you need to go, you have to be more yourselves, you know, like more Scottish, like get rid of the kind of the, you're dripping in the kind of um, American swag, get rid of that and just be more Scottish, you know? So we did that. And, and, and it was a case of like that there is like a, a start, start of a lie. Sure. Do you know what I mean? And sure. especially for me, and let me explain this, like ex- why that is actually was actually way more of a lie in many ways because I, I was born in South Africa and moved to Motherwell in 94. So like Kurt Cobain had just died. And I, I was like absolutely in love with my country. You know, I, like I grew up near the beaches surfing every day. Like I loved South Africa, you know, without seeing exactly what was really going on until it was really going on. But I also was super happy that a country is like freeing itself. Sure. And that some amazing stuff was happening. I was so like, let, you know, let, let, let's not go anywhere. But we ended up, because my dad's job, we ended up back in Scotland and we ended up in Motherwell. Motherwell's pretty... Are you, are you from Motherwell? Oh, yeah, yeah, from Motherwell. <laughs> I'll let you, I'll let you um, see what you want because we won't take any offence to it, I'm sure. <laughs> well, Motherwell was like, used to be... I, I, the reason I was okay with moving to Motherwell was because I had sat up all night and watched the 1991 Cup um, Final. Cup final. Yeah. And so I thought Motherwell was like this. I just had my this in my head, the steel man. Like this is a courageous city of winners. And, you know, like, I, so that's what I thought I was coming to. My mom's from there. I had a load of, load of family from there. And so I was just like up for it, you know. And, I, and my dad convinced me that we'll go because you'll go and play football and it'll be fine. And then it was you just, pretty, <laughs> it was brutal. It was absolutely like unbelievably brutal. I came from a country freeing itself from apartheid. And the first time I heard racism, like in your face racism was in Motherwell. Like it was the, I'd seen um, someone calling an Asian kid, full racial, racial terms to his face. And and coming from a racially kind of heightened place where people are trying to change that, you couldn't do do that. Like I would be like, whoa, everyone would step in and be like, you can't say that. But it was like normal, you know? And the first time I went to Far Park to see a, a Motherwell and Rangers game, our, our Motherwell and Celtic game, I was hearing people ch- chant things against Catholics. And I was just like, whoa, like what, what is going on here? Yeah. So what have I come to from like a war to 
a religious war to racism to like a town that has lost its source of um of way of making money like the steel industry thatcher completely destroyed the steel injury so motherwell had lost a lot of its culture what it was about it used to be a thriving place everyone was happy and and we came into that and i i had a more south african accent my if you if i spoke to you then you'd just be like that is strong south african you know that is a south african accent so i started to mold the accent my dad's scottish and my mom's scottish so i can my i have a natural type of scottish thing in my accent but at that time, it was too um, covered with with Africans, not Africans, but like South African slur and, you know, the, 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 the speech. And so I was just such a target. I was dark. I was dark skinned. I had blonder hair. I was getting beat up every day at school. I was a really good footballer. So I was getting beat up because of that. And it was proper hell. Like every single day was getting beat. I couldn't wait to get out. And when I had the chance to... I started training with Motherwell and had a chance to play professional football. I got beaten, uh, I got jumped and beaten into like a really bad, you know, intensive care where I was just out and I was kind of like, it was touch and go for a long time. And never mind like the idea of like being attacked and what that does to you mentally. It was like that incident had a residual effect that lasted so long. It basically broke me, broke my spirit. I was completely done confidence wise. I would, wouldn't want to stand too close to anyone. Anyone was too close to me. I'd kind of like flinch. I was completely destroyed as a kind of confident person. So when I moved to Dundee and I kind of met someone like Bill, who was like super confident, good looking guy, popular, it kind of, he like kind of took me under his wing a bit. And, and I, I kind of started hanging out with the skaters and built friendships in a town that seemed like, a little bit different there was kids who wore baggy jeans there was bands there was punk rock bands i felt like oh man like this is uh, this feels a little bit yeah yeah yeah, i feel like like everyone's so different i feel like i'm also so different so um and so when i started rapping i was i when i came out of hospital um i was i couldn't stop rhyming i was seeing rhymes all the time because my uncle had put headphones on my head while i was in intensive care and it was playing like Park and Biggie and, you know, Nas and uh, just like incredible artists, Rakim and, and Naughty by Nature and people like that, um, Bone Thugs and Harmony. And so um, when I, you can imagine all that was going on in my head. So when I came out, I couldn't stop rhyming. So that's why I, I rhymed. I didn't even know what rhyming was really, but I fell in love with it. And I discovered the art and the art, the art of freestyle. And, and, and so when I, naturally i just started rapping in american you know at that point because i'd never heard of anything like scottish rap you know so when i met bill and and it was kind of like he was also very heavily american cultured you know influenced we were kind of like rapping in these weird kind of half american half scottish accents you know and so then when someone said no no you gotta go full scottish you can so you can see like i'm coming from south african to learning how to speak fully broad scottish to now rapping in a part Scottish accent. Now I'm like constantly changing, trying to be something else, you know. Um, and now looking back, I wish I wish I just said, look, look, I'll just rap and I'll just speak in my norm, normal voice, a mixture of Scottish and South African. What's wrong with that? Totally. But it was like you're just trying to fit in, you know. Like as a young person who's gone through this, now you just you just want to be liked. You just want to be fit, fitting into the 
the thing. So when we went down to London... Good question, Gavin, isn't it? I've had, uh, just not to go off on a tangent, but I've had people like Stanley Odd and the LaFontaine's on the podcast, and mm-hmm. they've almost went through... I love both of them. Yeah, they're great. And they've went through a similar journey, and I think so many Scottish rappers will have in terms of just coming from a Scottish background and rapping in an American accent and trying to find, you know, when's the right time to make this transition to Scottish? But then you've had a whole journey there. You know, you've got the South African part, you've got the Scottish part, yeah. the American back to Scottish. It's, it must really play games in your head as well. Yeah, because I was constantly like, but it's one of those things with accents. Is like once you have an accent on for a while, it starts to become the, the voice you hear, you know? Yeah. Um, like there's a natural voice in your head and then there's a voice how we kind of speak in a, in a way that it's like for most people, it's the same accent at least. Yeah. But for me, it was very different for quite a, quite a while. Like... Um, I remember when I first kind of went down to London later and we, we were having the accents. I remember my, sis, my sister, Michelle, speaks in a full South African accent still. Right, okay. And so she was just like, oh, I was just getting used to your Scottish accent. Now you're American, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, but I guess in our family, they, they kind of, I was also always acting as well. And the, one of the reasons me and Bill got off, you know, off on the right tangent with each other was, because we loved like movies, quoting films, playing roles. We were always acting, always playing characters just for the fun of it, you know? So the Sullivan Brains thing ended up becoming like, <laughs> yeah, a chance to play like the greatest role that you could ever play. When, you, when you're creatively driven like that and all you can think of is, I want to entertain everyone in the room. I'm going to drop jokes. I'm going to be rhyming. Whatever way I can entertain you, that's what I want to do, you know? So in that regards, like Sullivan Brains was the greatest gift to us you know, all gifts normally become in some ways a bit of a plague. But when we went to uh, to London, we went to the back of this queue that went round the block, block twice. And every all the rappers waiting to get into this, are you the next Eminem? If you think about identity, like you look around that queue, like everyone was fake. You know, like yeah. people trying to make it in rap. And I can say this now because I'm like completely at terms of where I am and who I am. And I've been this as well. I've been this where you, everything you're doing, you're putting on this bravado, this like, you know, like this attitude, this way you talk to people, it's all put on. And it might be because of the hood you're, that you're living in or the people you're hanging out with all the time. Fine. Yeah. But it is afflicted. It is an affliction you're putting on and you, you become it. Right. So it's a character. And, and, and we're all playing characters. I think that's a a reality, not just in, in entertainment, but even in some, you know, office jobs, you know, you're, you're trying to impress people and you're, you're trying to get to that next yeah. step of your career, isn't it? It's... it's human nature. Like we want to fit in. We want to kind of, we want people to like us, you know, and when, and the, the, the crazy thing about rap that I think got misunderstood, like rap was a way for kids to get themselves out of the ghetto, to sell drugs, even though they weren't doing drugs, to make money and make demo tapes to get out. You know, so rap was always a way of like bettering your life. It wasn't really supposed to be about, you know, fighting other people. Like battle rap's great for the um, the ability to like do that with your mind, to like put your mind in a focused, tactical, strategic way. It's, it's incredible. I still am a battle rapper to this day, the way I think about things. But the attitudes that come along with that and like living an angry life is and i remember being in the queue that day and just like looking up and down and me and bill were just like so like oh like so happy to like yeah you know we're here um and kids just in the queue just like heads down like you know like attitude 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 and we just basically went from the back of the queue because we, we were never going to get in 
So we went from the back of the queue, down the queue, just battling people for their spot, trying to get forward and just destroying people, you know? I remember there's a dude who was some, said something about, like, oh, you're from Glasgow, like, F off back to Glasgow. And I was like, let me hear you make those Glasgow statements when I smashed this asshole's face into a Picasso painting or some something like that. But I remember we were just, we were on it. You know, we were ready to go to That's war right. you know, for for our belief, for, for like, we're getting in this place today because we came 15 hours in a bus. We're not leaving without, you know, getting in there. So we got in one of the two or third people back, you know, we battled our way all the way down to the front, got in. And so you can imagine that our confidence, this is like five, four, three or four years of rapping every single day. And we created a game called Porcupine where we'd made ourselves rap every single minute of almost every day, like putting our, throwing words at each other, having to turn it all and battle each other back. We were constantly, our brains are like, you know, when you do a sport and you do it every single day, like Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours, we put those hours in. So we just believed when we got into that audition, we believed this is it. And we are, there's, you know, we are such good lyricists and we're, we're so good at keeping time and, and, and delivery, but we weren't in retrospect, we weren't like, we saw one group go on before us. They were called um, MI5. One of them is a dude called uh, Jargon. And he's one of the best young rappers I've ever seen in Britain. Friends with Maestro. And that's how we met Maestro. But his, they, they were incredible. Their stage, their, the way they performed, like they, they like took the, the audition rant like hostage. They were like kind of taking them hostage. They had this whole they had stage show plan. And I was just like, oh my God, we don't have anything like that. And it was the realization of like, there's always someone else who's got a better idea than you, you know? And I was like, oh man. And it kind of broke me a little bit there. Realized like, we're not quite ready for this. We're ready to, for, for battling people on the street. We're not ready to do this. Like, look at these kids. And, th- and they never got picked. They got kind of like, yeah, cool, thanks. It wasn't good enough. They weren't even good enough. And I was like, what? That isn't good enough? That is amazing, you know? They were essentially the black Eminems. I thought there was, there was three of them, and I thought they were all as good as Eminem. Like, they were, like, incredible. Cool. And they just got told no and couldn't believe it. So we went in. We rapped for, like, 30 seconds, and they told us stop. And they just started laughing. And it was soul destroying. When you've worked on something that you love, like I, I, I got kicked out of college because I was making beats all the time. I become completely obsessed with the art of making hip hop, of rhyming, you know, and then to have these three middle-aged white people who knew such little about hip hop, Eminem could have been auditioning and they would have been like, sorry, not, not, not quite Eminem enough, you know, like, so, um, so they just laughed at, laughed us out of there and it was so heartbreaking. Uh, we went back to Dundee, um, they called us, it wasn't them. It was the next dude we went to see, uh, called us the rapping proclaimers. And I remember, and it, when I tell people that, like, oh yeah, they called us the rapping proclaimers, people are like, oh, that's, that's really, you know, because <laughs> Scots think of proclaimers as, oh, that's our, like, they're like our one of our greatest things, you know? Yeah. And I love the Proclaimers. I love their songs. But again, when you're in that, like, well, fuck on hip hop, you know? And someone says that, it was like, what? You know, it, was like, it was like gun shot to the heart, you know? It was like, yeah. God damn. You know, because you, you're in this belief that we're cool. We're, we're cool. We're like cutting edge. You don't want to be these two specky guys from Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And these like middle-aged white people just like, uh, you know, you're Scots, 
Scots will never work in, in music. You know, it's like when people think Scotland, they think see you, Jimmy, hats. They think bagpipes. groundskeeper, Willie, bagpipe, Braveheart, you know. Um, and I'm, it's just, it's so annoying. You think of like what Scotland's done for the world, like created the telephone, TV, penicillin, most medicines, like MRI machines. Like Scotland has like done incredible things for the world. Really is probably one of the most technologically forward-thinking countries you know and yet like we're, we can't we can't play this game yeah you we're know a simpsons character you know it's yeah we're just a simpsons character you know <laughs> yeah so heartbreaking and um and so like basically we went through a lot but we created these characters and the plan was you know we're not gonna never no one's gonna ever ex- uh, accept us in this game do we just give up and, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I probably would have just went on to make other music or, or just try to do the same thing. Or, but I was so creative, like, in my head. Like, nothing was good enough. Like, I had to get. I couldn't let go. It was like an, as an addict. I have a very addictive personality. So all I could do was sit every night in my bedroom, like, taking fucking diazepam, trying to, like, deal with, like, sleeping problems, looking at like posters on my wall of like um the secret of my success and like um <laughs> beetlejuice and you know then an eminem poster and thinking like what can i what can i do here you know and i remember seeing the secret of my success again i'd seen that f- film loads of times but like i was sitting in my bedroom and it came on channel four and i was thinking yeah what he does here and that you know you've like that's again like i was saying like um when you look at things no i could see what that was doing in my head i was just seeing like i can just go and be someone else though i can just create a character who they think is sellable use all of this talent and then then what you know and that, that question like what would happen though it wasn't in my head like everyone anyone i told that to they were like you are crazy that that's just like you're talking like cuckoo land stuff but in my head, it was like, I've almost, I've just attempted to rob a fucking bank to get money to record. I'm not thinking correct here. Like I am totally outside. I'm going to do something dangerous and I'm going to end up in a bad place. You know, I was already there. I got kicked out. I was like going to get kicked out of my, my place I was living. Everything in my head was just like, get this, go after this. You know, I'd heard that call. The journey was there. It was like, don't, don't just walk away from that like you know what happened in the queue you know how good you are like if they, you just let these people tell you your, your shit like what is that you're just gonna turn away and then, so I had these other voices in my head saying like do it do it like we can do it you know and so I um, told the guys and they just <laughs> fucking laughed at me um, and as everyone did but a good friend of ours passed away and so we I couldn't be in the town anymore. I just I couldn't be in, in Dundee. I've seen him everywhere. And uh we decided let's just go for it. Let's just try this. And it was always a case of like, it's probably not gonna work. Like this is silly. It won't we'll work. Lose. You know, let's do it. Yeah. Exactly. We'll we'll be home soon. But the other side of my brain was like, this can't fail. So I had that like going on. It was like because even if we go in and, and something good happens, yeah. any little bit of a positivity is going to be like amazing. Cause like what we got here, like 
what do we have? We don't have anything. So it, for me, I even though like I, you know, we're doing graphics, we're artists, we could have done anything with our lives, really. You know, it wasn't like you don't have anything. But my That's brain told to myself that you wanted that dream. You know, why would you do anything else? You know. Also, I was at a point where I can't lose again because like football was gone. Um, I was coming from that trauma. So it was like, are you just going to keep getting beat up and just take it? So that's where I was. It was like, no, it's time to fight. It's time to like start fighting for what you actually want to be. You don't believe in yourself. I thought such low, horrible things in myself that anytime I recorded on a mic, I could feel myself becoming someone else. And I liked it. I didn't want to sit in my room thinking like constantly dreaming about what happened, constantly feeling scared and, and dying inside, essentially. I, whenever I went on a mic and recorded myself, especially when I started to change the voice and becoming someone else, it was so empowering. It was like, oh my God, you don't have to be this loser. You can literally just go become someone. And so I was so excited about that. And you know, my, my, one of my best friends, Ozzy, who was rapping with us, um, he didn't want to do it because it was like, look, I'm going to go study more in Glasgow. Totally get how, why you want to do it. And I think you should do it. And he was like, you should do this by yourself because it will be huge. Like no one will hold you back. You don't have to carry anyone. Just go and do it by yourself. And I just wasn't confident enough. I was scared. I just, I needed Bill. He was good looking. I knew that people looked at him in a certain way. Um, and also he got a call back from Polydor. Right. That was things no one really knows. There's so much in the story people don't actually know that make it like extremely interesting, yeah. you know. But I knew that he had he had a certain type of confidence that when I was around him, I felt better. I felt like I can be someone else because I was never trying to be myself. <laughs> Why would you want to be someone who's been beat up and has failed? You who perceives that they failed at everything. Um, Why would you want to be that? So. Bill was a facilitator in many ways of, because he was quite cool. It wasn't hard for him to like throw on a different character because we were doing it all the time. So for me, it was like, actually, I was too scared to do it myself. And I thought, you know, with Bill, I, I can easily play these roles. I can play off him so well, you know. And was Bill in the same mindset, Gavin? Was he like, yeah, let's go and do this? Or did you have to convince him? Had to convince a little bit, but I think it was a case of like, just like me thinking like this will be a couple months and then we'll be back because bill had his girlfriend and he had a lot of cool things he was, had a great job and the skate store that we both worked out i worked at i got fired because i was constantly making beats all the time but um yeah he had a, a life set quite set it wasn't really any need you know to leave that life so but i had told myself i have nothing else so it was a case of like pull him pull him along <laughs> hope it and hope he eventually agrees and then he did and um so when we yes yeah, so i don't know if you want to ask another question because i'm you know you, you've, you've convinced bill to go you're, you're going down to london he'd had this call from from polydor already so when you were going down there did you have contacts that you thought this is who we're going to target straight away or were you going down there thinking it's london there's record companies here we'll find someone the coolest thing that happened that i think uh for me, it was like, this is going to work. Um, we had, I recorded a track uh, called Accident Prone, and I had taken it around to like our friend's house and played it, and everyone was just like dancing. Like, wherever it was like, it's a big party, and everyone was 
dancing to like kind of Dre type stuff. And I got my friend who was DJing to play it. And everyone kept dancing at the same level. And people were, and I remember people being like, oh, is this the new M track? Is this oh, new Eminem? Yeah. You know? And so I was like, and it was really badly demoed. It was just like Eminem was releasing a lot of leak stuff. So the quality on some of the stuff was low. Yeah. You know, it was like from his um, demo. Back then as well, there were so many like illegal downloads that the quality might have been yeah. low. Yeah. So people just thought that was M's. And, I, and then, um, and I kind of said that to, to Bill and Ozzy and our, our friend Brian and stuff, I, I kind of said, like, yeah, that's like this, this new American dude I heard. And they, they kind of bought it for a while until they were like, nah, nah that's like your t- style lyrics. And I was like, yeah, it's me. And they're like, holy shit. That's and crazy. so I got, when, I, when we decided eventually, I got Bill to rap on a track called Shut Your Mouth with Me. And then I entered it into a Radio 1 extra competition and it just won. And it was just like, for me, it was like, what? One minute where there's no chance we're ever going to make it. Then we win our like national radio. And so we were starting to get, and we didn't even know. I remember people telling me like, holy shit, your song's on Radio 1. People were uh, playing it on Radio 1 for like a week. It was like on rotation. That was what it won. And so then I had an email from a dude asking me to come down and asking us to come to an an interview. And it was a a junior A&R at Sony. Incredible, and it? it was like, what? This straight, you know, because normally you think you get like loads of things from smaller independents or, or sister labels or whatever. And this was from, it was a junior, but it was at the major department of Sony. So it was like, holy crap. So for me, it was just like, this is going to work now. Like, this is going to work. And so we went down to that meeting and what we weren't ready for is because we never kind of timed um anything and we never really worked on the backstory we were just constantly playing with the accents so staying in character doing trying to do everything in the accents to get the speaking voice right because the rap voice is fine because you like do it at a different a different place in your throat but the speaking voice is quite difficult in the early days there's some footage on youtube it really is from the early days of what we did and it's not great the accents aren't there yet yeah. and that's kind of what a lot of people see but actually that was like very early stuff um and at this we point, just, we, where you decided, you know, that we can't rap an American accent and talk in Scottish accents, you know, we need to be American. At this point, you're thinking, that's it, we're, we're California. Yeah, because I remember when I entered that thing in the competition, I wrote this fake bio about these kids from, like, Huntington Beach. One was from this place, one was from another, met in Huntington Beach. And I wrote this little story. It was just like a fun little, I love to write, you know, it's this little, like, that would be really fun if there was a group that, had that backstory and it was like not knowing anything about what i was talking about you know just hearing certain artists who'd come from certain places just making up something in the little bio and i i genuinely thought with he, people hearing that song and then reading the bio i thought that was why it won and that's why that's why this anr is gone because he's reading this bio and going eh, that's interesting yeah, cool and you know and I, that, you know we're scottish you might not have got on despite the track having the you know the, the- we we knew Bill had done this thing loads where we'd be in the skate store and he would just be bored and he'd be like, I'm just going to call a label and, and we'd call up and he'd just say, speaking in Scotch, like, oh, hey, how's it going? It's Billy from uh, Dundee. And it would just be like, boop, right. dial tone, you know? And anytime we ever tried it, I remember trying it. You, your heart would be beating so hard because you just want them to answer and just put you through. And they'd answer and you'd be like, hi, I'm, I'm Gavin from, from, from Scott, you know? And they'd be like, Sorry, we don't we don't let anyone call up that A and R department. You know, like, are you crazy? You know. But as soon as we started doing it in American accents, we were getting through. 
they were just letting us through. And you, it was crazy. It, it was all of this around this two week period of deciding, like, let's go for it. And then when we get that email, it's like, we got to go for it. Like, the, the, you know, talk about hearing the call. It was like sirens all around, like, go, go, go. You know, like, it's, it's your chance. And I remember being so nervous in that first A&R meeting with Dougie. When he came in, he just starts speaking and he's, he's Scottish. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and it was like, oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, because our accents are so not right yet. Yeah. Speaking to a Scots guy was like, our confidence dropped because we're having to, it's when someone's Scottish is speaking to you and you're Scottish, like you, you straight you know. away go back into like certain words, you know? And he had said something like, I, I can, you know? And then one of us had said, I, and the other one had said, can, can, you know? Or something <laughs> like that, just no like a natural thing, you uh, know? And he was just immediately like, what? You know, so <laughs> everything went downhill in that um, interview with him. And uh, even though he liked the music, I just think he was like, where'd you guys? He kept saying, where, so whereabouts again? Where are you from? You know, and we both kind of kept saying different things and we never had it together. It was all over the place. So we left that meeting and that we knew we'd blown that. And um, this, this guy now knows he's on us. There's a guy at this company who knows that we're Scottish. Um, at that point, we just decided like, we can't, I said that we can't do this half-assed. Like we got to go in, we got to go full in. We don't speak to each other in Scottish anymore. That's it. We, we are here, as soon as we're, as long as we're here, we are Amer- these guys. And then we created this crazy story. We, we, we had gave ourselves like two weeks to create like an insane buzz. We blagged into places, sp- spread um, rumors about ourselves, <laughs> made crazy statements about ourselves. But at the same time, we were doing things. We were in action mode. We were playing shows, doing crazy fucking shows that we had never thought of before. But now we were doing insane things on stage like our whole thing was anywhere we go we steal the attention like we're on a holiday every single minute that we're here steal the attention from everyone it doesn't matter you know any venue you walk in steal the attention and i remember the first kind of venue we walked in um madam jojo's it was like this and this was a a major label audition that we had blagged on we'd called up a guy an american accent just been like bro we're, we're we're on tour you know, we want to play your, your, your event tonight. We're from Cali, you know, and dude was just like, cool headline slot. And we're like, all right. (laughs) So we got headline slot on a major label audition. So all the labels go and they watch these acts and they were all extremely boring girl groups, boy groups, you know, doing like unison movements together. And I remember when we walked backstage, this, this just tells you about the, the industry as a character, like who the industry is. Right. It was an open, dressing room backstage so you walk in and everyone people are getting dressed you got really beautiful girls between 14 and 18 naked getting dressed and dudes over here getting dressed and it's like what it's like a different world you know and i remember seeing this girl come out of the back this office area and she was like must be like 14 and this dude come out after her who was like promoting the event and it was like holy shit man That's this grim. is crazy you know like it was really dark that's grim isn't it it's really grim yeah and there was so many things like that i saw over the time um i remember going to see later on i went to see this uh um this girl singing and she was signed to sony and i remember the one of the dudes i was with joel 
turned around and he was like, yeah, Sony's going to let her go. And I remember hearing this voice and it was like one of the best voices I've ever heard in my life. It was like, wow, you know, and I wanted to work with her voice. I wanted to like produce something with her. Um, and they were like, yeah, Sony's going to let her go though. Cause well, you wouldn't fuck her, would you? And I remember him saying that and being like, what's that got to do with listen to her sing you know, this is before Adele and, and things like that and that was Sia that was Sia and so yeah so Sony dropped Sia Sony she was on a smaller label on Sony and they dropped her because for that reason like they, and they gave her that complex you know I don't know if, if anyone had told her that straight but I think she felt that you know you can't help be at a label and you go to your you go to your A&R meetings and they tell you sometimes like why you know what they're thinking you know and at major labels they only sell three different things they sell crazy empathy or sex and if you're not one of those three things you're yeah. not going to get prioritized you know yeah. so but you know she's had the last laugh nah, exactly 80 million last couple <laughs> of years or whatever but um but she could have been there so much earlier if you know the, the world was at a different time yeah i mean it's it's taken people a lot of people say to me like oh yeah but like why didn't you guys just do this or do that and it's like why didn't Sia just stay there and, you know, she, she worked her ass off. She made so many songs, but she had to go away and then learn that it's, you know, that it's not about being what they want you to be like, and then come up with, you know, just, just write songs, just love it, do it for the love. I think when most artists get to that point where they just do it for the love and it's not about all this BS, then they become like greatness, you know, then they become real good, you know, but you have to go through this journey like to get there. So we hated it. We kept seeing stuff like that. And I grew to hate every single little bit about it. And it's not that you hate people at the label because there's so many cool people you meet there. Just there's normal people. Culture, doing office. The culture that's yeah. uh, toxic. It's what they have to, it's, it's what the, the, the head A&Rs have to do. It's what, what they, so as soon as we were signed and it took a while to get signed and we had to go around and, and create these massive, you know, bombs, you know, like going into Island Records and freestyling, ripping into everyone, battle rapping everyone in the A&R department just to, you know, make them all laugh. They wanted us creating a buzz, you know. And then when we got signed to Sony, one of the first things that happened was we got sat down and they were going through our songs and they were just like, oh, you know, like trying to figure out what we could be. And it's like, oh, no, no, but you've signed us That's as this. <laughs> you know? So here's us, made, made characters that we, that we that have got us this deal because that's what they want that's they can see the marketability of how to sell us now but now they want to change us into something else <laughs> they want to make our music for younger audiences so it's, I, I, it was unbelievable and so it's like i we i always had to fight for our credibility of our songs and that no 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 one else is going to write our songs sorry like because that's what happens at major label like yeah, you know, you guys are the rappers. We'll, we'll get someone else to write the song. No, like, that's no, not how it works. What? <laughs> yeah, constantly trying to get other producers. So I remember sitting in the early stages, sitting in with producers, and they're just like patting away, like big, big producers, you know, some of my heroes. And they're just patting away, struggling. And I'd be like, look, I'd put my NPC down. And I'd be like, you know, and they'd be like, oh, shit. You know, and so I, was, I knew that I was on that level because I wanted it. I wanted to make something great every night of my life, you know. Absolutely. And so we started knocking out like two, three songs a day, just like working at a level that I didn't see anyone else around us. And it was important for us and for me to like make sure that we controlled the music because that was us being real, you know, because when you're signed, 
everyone in the business isn't writing their songs. They're not making their beats. They don't know anything about what's happening with the beats that's being made, yeah. you know? They're just kind of being told. They're molded into a ball of clay to be someone else that they're not. And so from that perspective, I was like, well, we're making, I'm making every beat uh, and we're, I'm writing every hook and we're writing, doing all of this, you know, like no one's touching our stuff. And, and so for me, it was like, we're realer than all these other acts because they, they, none of them have any idea what's going on with their songs, you know? And yet the, the ones who were most passive were like, yeah, cool. I'll just sing whatever you give me. They would get further on. They would get start to get released well, because, because they're easy. With hassle, you know, they're easy to deal with. Yeah, <laughs> they're just easy to deal with. But when Sony and that Sony and BMG merged later, they were all the first to go. It was like, nah, because none of them would sell anything. None of them, you know. So yeah, so we the the process of um, two two years making like six albums, touring all the time, doing insane shows, building up like a huge fan base just to get this record out and Sony constantly dropping the ball constantly like, no, we're not going to, you know, 40 out of 50 DJs have said that your main two songs are going to be number one hits, but we're not going to release the, you know, number one hits if you can get them played, but your songs are all about, you know, fucking grannies, bestiality, swearing every other line, sex all the time, masturbation, like, we can't get that on radio. And it's like 48 out of 50 DJs are saying it's a number one hit. Right. They're like, yeah, but we can't, we're not going to take the risk. We don't take risks. They want 50 out of 50, don't they? And it's like, well, man, wow. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, we're giving you this crazy stuff, you know, that we don't give a fuck about this shit. We're making up mental topics to, to rap about, you know, just to kind of take the piss out of everything. Um, just so that kids will love this stuff because yeah. kids would have loved it. You know, it's like, we're, we don't want to fucking do this, you know? There must but, have been some shows during that period though, Gavin, that you were playing and it was with people that you, you admired or total heroes or really, really famous people that, you know, you're thinking, oh my God, I'm rubbing shoulders with them, you know? Exactly. Like one of the biggest things was getting to, getting the call. We had been on the road for so long at one point and um, coming off the road, we were like, I had like a stress fracture on my leg. And um, we had been on MTV, which was a tough one because MTV loved the performance that we did. Like I went on and the guy kept, Dave Barry kept like quizzing us about our past. He wouldn't leave. Like, so, so where, where are you from? Like, <laughs> really, you wouldn't leave it. You know, I'm like, oh, wow, this guy. And so I just did this freestyle thing, playing that porcupine freestyle game, just did this freestyle and just made the whole crowd laugh. And we, we kind of got all over it. And that's how we you kind know, of deal with things is like, Ah, cause a distraction do some like funny round thing or whatever um but a lot of people saw that like mtv so it was like you know it was gonna get seen yeah. and a lot of people who who knew us in the industry like scattered around um like the people at polydor um one, one of the, the dude who called us the rap and proclaimers who ran his own hip-hop magazine who ran hip-hop <laughs> connection <laughs> he was the dude yeah a guy called dave Loeb, and um and then obviously Dougie Bruce, who was at Sony. So like, I'm, I was so worried about going on MTV because all these people are going to see it. Someone's just going to say, hey, no, wait a minute. I, no, they're Scottish and all that, of Scotland. I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. what that's doing to your head as well, Gavin, when you know, oh, you've met Dougie Bruce at such an earlier stage. You're now signed to the label, so you're so much And he's walking around. Aye. He's walking around. All, all the time we're in Sony, we're like ducking and diving, like, oh, fuck, you know, like constantly at heart rates at, at like just pounding and i'm constantly having to take 
vitamins, take things to like slow my heart rate and like, you know, deal with the fact that I'm sweating a lot because I'm conscious of like, of yeah. things, you know, like. Constantly on edge, aren't you? Yeah, just constantly worried. And I, th- I think Bill had a different, completely different experience because I think a lot of the time he was just, he was just enjoying this ride. Yeah. Because he, he just wants to, um, let's just get famous, get cock sucked and get the fuck out of here and go home. <laughs> you know, like that's it. Like it's simple to him. But for me, it was like, I'm can't, like, I got to make sure like this thing doesn't get, mm. you know, I got, I'm watching every fucking corner to like see where this is going. And just when, because we, we'd seen that there was like forums lighting up and there was a lot of people from Dundee, people who knew us telling stories on these forums. So if anyone Googled Cellable Brains, which someone we eventually find someone dead but no one blew us out the water but it was so every time we got a call from management or label to come in because it's urgent we'd be like oh fuck they know they know they know yeah and just constantly worrying but we went back on the road on the road was like the safety yeah you know like just do what you do just enjoy having crazy shows but when you're on the road every single day 40 days 50 days that even that can become like the stress there, you know, because the, the numbers are growing. You should have had multiple singles that you would have went number one multiple times over by now. You know, they're talking about like a year and a half in or whatever. And then we come off the road and we're so like at each other's throats because it's like, you said this would take a couple of weeks. Like, <laughs> we're still you know, here. Why, is, why are we not released yet? And no one can understand that our management, no one can understand why has Sony not released. And so we're coming up to our release date and we're getting excited about it. And then they say, oh, good news and bad news. You're not coming off the road. You're going back on tour with your homies. Because at that point, everyone believed we were best friends with Eminem and D12. And so D12 were coming on the road. So now we're going on the road and they're going to come. The tour band's going to pick us up in two hours. And it was like, fuck, did we just say we can? How do we get away with this now? You know, this is, this is a very different thing. You know, as soon as someone sees that we are not their friends, this is over. You know, so it was another thing of like another great opportunity that was like, fuck, we're not going to be able to take it, but we couldn't not take it. So we had to go and do it. So we decided that as long as we're cool with them and our label isn't there, as long as no one sees that they don't really know us, then it'll be fine. But as soon as we got there, they were on stage sound checking and we were at the side of the stage waiting to sound check. So they're, they're there and we're here and our team are dying in the in Brixton Academy, like on the main floor, just looking up, like waiting for like, ah, the reunion, you know? So yeah. there's this big moment of like tension and fear of that Jesus Christ. Horrendous. You know, it's a, a gig that you've dreamed of playing all your life. And when it gets there, yeah. you can't enjoy it. <laughs> well, the cool thing is that we did because we just, me and Bill just went out on the stage and just pretended we knew them, hugged them. And it looked really good because they were, I guess they were just being nice. And then we ended up kind of like getting to be fine with them afterwards. So the next time anyone saw us, it was like, ah, you know, they're high five and they're, you know, so it looked real from that point on. Did they ever say at any point, like, you don't know us, or like, did they ever ask any questions that probed, like, what's the relationship here, or was it, no? Not from them. Um, I think they just probably thought, like, ah, these are some dudes we've met once. You know, you're not going to go, like, oh, by the way, I I don't remember meeting you, you know? (laughs) So it was very... Or they meeting every night that... I know. And the thing is, we had met them, like we'd gone to an M show years before and kind of went up and spoke to Proof after the show. But that's like such a fleeting thing. He was never going to remember that, you know. And so um, it looked all right and we got away with that. And then that show was probably the best show that we ever did. 
at Brixton. It was like an amazing show. And then kind of things start going down. Something happened straight after that show, which was our lawyer was constantly after our passports. Um, and he had seen, he had seen some of the stuff online. So he was kind of telling us like, look, I, I know what's going on. So we're going to have to, you know, and at that point it made sense for me. It was like, um, the next delay of releasing was from me because it was like, if we, I knew from him, from the lawyer that as soon as we release, if, if then someone, if the record doesn't do well or whatever, because of bad press of all oh, these guys are actually Scottish, they're pretending yeah. they could sue us for all the money. They could sue us for everything we'd been given at that point. It was like, where and he was like, where's the money? Where's the million? Like, what are you going to do? Are you just going to, do you know what I mean? This is fraud, you know? And the reality hit was like, shit. So I thought, well, let's change it to a rock group because we were playing live with a band and it was sounding so much cooler. So it was like, if we change this to punk rock with rap, the accents matter less because in punk rock, it's almost cooler if you're British, you know? And punk rock doesn't have that, like, credibility of being from the streets or whatever. It's just, like, about the music. It's just about the attitude, you know? And we were really more punk rock you know like our attitude everything we did was very fuck you and in your face yeah. and so it fit so well and our agents were like oh yeah definitely you got you know this is really where you should oh, be awesome. yeah. so no one no one really was kind of against that move but then it was like it's another delay and bill was constantly like he's yeah you know, i can't stay down here forever man like i'm getting to get married you know my, my wife is my girlfriend's wife to be is pregnant like I can't stay here, you know? So that was the kind of downfall. I don't want to go into too much of the ending because that's a big kind of ending in the film, but like that was the, the beginning to, to the, the, the step downwards. Like we had done so many things. MTV wanted to give us our own TV show, but it's constantly like the, while it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, this kind of like thing has become a monster. It's snowballed, snowballed completely out of control. And now it was a case of damage control. So while I I just wanted to like fix it, change it, work with it, make it work, you know, because I'm not going back, you know. Um, I think time was up for Bill and it was like, you know. Yeah. Like, you've been on this, the road with someone who's your close friend for so long. And even if it was, you know, someone that you've lived with, be it your partner or whatever, if you're around someone 24-7, stuck in a van, you know, traveling around the country, you're going to be in each other's oh man, yeah. heads. And it, living with, yeah, exactly. Living, living with each other. Time, you know, it's... Yeah. And I think as well, like the growth of two different personalities, you kind of come to realize like, actually, we're not that similar. And also by the end of it, like I had grown the confidence to like, to, I was, I'm doing everything. I'm like, you know, yeah. I, I am, I am this guy now. Like I, and um, as much as I didn't want to lose the guy I was playing, I was kind of finding a real person who I, to be. Yeah. And so much of it, much of him was like, I didn't like because I was getting away with murder. Um, but I was just mostly focusing on the music and like, I just couldn't break away from the character. Even when it was over, um, I made six albums. I was totally, but like at that point when it's, when it kind of all crashed down and there was a big event that happened that made it crash. Um, I got hit with like all the debt. <laughs> and at that point I didn't know what, what the debt was. And it was like, getting taxed as a self-employed musician, but also getting taxed as a limited company. And all that debt just landed at my door. 
and it was like, what do I do? So I, so the money wasn't coming in anymore. And I had all this debt, 50 K plus debt of like, that I had to try clear. So I had to, I became all these different things. I was like using this character, became all these different things of finding ways to hustle and con to make money. Um, but then I also kind of was getting desperate because I wasn't making enough. So I was like, go to the sperm bank, whacking off to make money or like go like taking old ladies out and becoming like an escort agent to make money. And then, and all these things were just like not making enough money. And like the, the stress was growing and growing and growing. And on top of that, I, I'd start, I'd lost someone close to me again and, uh, and all the trauma had started to catch up again. You know, like when you're, when you're totally going for it and everything's cool, cool and you're being another person, it's all good. But when things are bad, your trauma is going to come back and it's going to come back tenfold. Yeah. And it's because I, because I was on so much shit to deal with like the stress and the paranoia, like when I'd go out drinking and things weird shit would happen because I'd be so kind of stressed and I, then I'd be on shit. I would just have these crazy nights and it just, it wasn't sustainable. It was like, this is dangerous now, you know? And eventually um, I had attempted to commit suicide because I'd lost someone I loved. Music was like a curse to me at that point. Like I couldn't, I couldn't deal with music anymore. Cause it was like all year, it was kind of like, I've made so much of you and what have you done for me? You know? So I, I, nothing back at the end of the day, other than a wacky day and a lot of stress. Yeah, it was really the the toughest point in my life to come through that. And like, I think after I came out of the hospital that time, like there was a part of him, this character that I was playing. Because at one point I could only hear that voice. I couldn't, and I couldn't, I started to like forget my real history, which is in a way something like what I wanted. Because yeah. I remember someone telling me, like someone close telling me like, you know, dump this character, just come back to the fucking real world, you know? And I would just immediately think, what real world yeah. you know i don't want my my old real world you know that's hell to me you know so, so i i was like in this dark place and you're in hospital for example are you still going on with the american accent if you're speaking to the nurses and the doctors or are you you can't when I stop it well when i first woke up from that my sister was there so it was just the it was then it was the first time that the scotch voice kind of came back a little bit and um and she, my sister was just like it's time to go home you know like drop this shit she means you know it's not like yeah yeah it's time to go back to scotland like and um and i just i I couldn't let go of the i I was always like i was at at first i was like i'm starting to think more like me here but then this clarity is actually maybe good because maybe i can like get something really going like i came off everything i was on and i kind of started to hear music a little bit differently i it's everything started to feel a little bit better you know clearer you know and then i managed to con myself and having a really good job using the character still but it felt a little different because it was like i'm I'm being closer to me (laughs) you know it was this process of getting closer to who i really am but also a process of finding someone that i wanted to be because this guy was me as an entertainer as a ballsy go out there and fucking do it he was what i wanted to be and and I didn't want to lose all of that. And yet I wanted to find someone, you know, like to, to become someone you really, become someone original who you really like de- being with. Yeah. You never have to go through a lot of versions. And I'd gone through all these versions and I was 
finding someone. You know, I didn't have a lot of the bad influence anymore. I was just hanging out with my best friend Rob, and and um, and it was it was kind of started to be a little bit nice again. And then a close friend of ours, Ivan, had had uh, got this rare um, brain uh, cancer, and it was like I was just starting to make music again. Sure. And so I was like, no, 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 like he's not. He was struggling to make. Um, the treatment so me and Robert decided like let's throw like a show to raise money for his treatment and like and it would it became an incentive to like get back to music use music for good like actually do something with your talent that you can you know you tr- save your friend here you know like Absolutely. so it was another call call to action you know and and I suppose you know you, you touched on that since then, Gavin. You've you've brought out the film, you know, the the great hip hop hoax. So so you've also brought out your book, California Scheming. And I suppose that as much as you've had such a negative experience, you've also had a positive, and it's changed your life completely, hasn't it? I think before we were recording, you said, you know, I can't look back with too many regrets. Yeah, because like, <laughs> like you have to consider negative, like as in calculating how much negative i was going through and like at times were were better in dundee things were great i met great friends but i had this desire and this hole that wasn't being filled so i was whenever i was alone i was in pain you know like i had a beautiful girlfriend a great great friends but like something was painful was was hurting you know it was like this desire to like want to impress your parents, want to do something great to, to put our family back together, like to make everything right, you know? Um, and that was a huge drive. So ev- unless I was doing that, unless I was working towards that, I couldn't be happy. And that was the thing that was very hard for family and friends to understand. Like, what, what is driving this dude? Like, and I was like, it's this desire to be someone that's wor- worthy of, of attention, to be someone that's worthy of ins- inspiring people, mm-hmm. you know, to actually just feel, wake up and feel like, ah, oh, I'm all right. You know, like a simple thing like that, it can be quite huge, but I wasn't like that. I was in such pain before. So doing the, the being this other character for a little while, you know, and even just giving completely into him, it allowed me to like develop someone else's problems to like, Mm -hmm. you know, the problem of God, I got to make 50 grand, you know, or the problem of, Oh, we've got to go out and make 50,000 fans or the label wouldn't release it. Bang, do it in three weeks. Uh, in four weeks like the, the problem solving and the abilities that i was like developing when i look back is just like look at the shit you did i i really can't look back at those the two years of being signed and the three years before that is like anything other than how quick all the positives really it was only really negative for like 15 percent of that time because yeah. of like you know the paranoia and, and things taking its toll and that's got a lot to do with just like starting out and not knowing where you're going, you know, because you're young and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like we were just running on adrenaline the whole time. And there's only so far that that's going to carry you. But I think um, to be able to come clean the way I did on stage at Ivan's show, for the, the show for Ivan, um, I think was, it was heartbreaking because Ivan didn't make it. So it was, abs- I just knew I couldn't be, this fake person anymore um or this fake persona not really a fake person because i was becoming someone um i knew i had to like put the, the fork in the ground and just go all right it's time now that you just kind of say who you are be who you are and so like just being able to say on stage like i'm gavin bain like i've never been to america 
you know like that, i'm a south yeah, african yeah, dude remember and the guitarist is there your, your guitarist and he doesn't even know you know no, he's like what <laughs> you know um yeah it was really a huge moment for me it was a moment that it was like okay like actually after that show um i started writing straight away and i felt like holy shit you're a writer you are so like this is what you you know so i kind of discovered like oh shit i am actually i do have a purpose i am some like this is what i always wanted to be and it was like just that idea of being okay with the journey like the journey towards becoming you know something that you want to be is gonna be it should be tough and there should be a, a monster along the way that you have to conquer you know it's like it's that um campbell you know the person with a thousand faces or whatever it's like that journey the hero's journey to like find who you really are it it shouldn't be easy if it's easy you're probably not on it you know i think when when you've come out and you've told everyone this there must be some people there gavin that you feel that you've let down because they've absolutely loved your character but on the other side and in hindsight many years on i think people look at your story especially when they've seen something like the vice feature or when they've seen the film or read the book and they think that's incredible that these two boys done that you know, like, it's amazing in itself. It's it's a talent. And it, I think a lot of that comes down to, to your character and probably Billy's as well and the fact that you're hardworking and you wanted to make that work. Yeah, I mean, God, the, the amount of time I spent in the studio and I think that was a big problem that ended up being between Bill and I because like, we were just recording. And he, I think he was just like, why are we just recording? Like, they're not releasing any of like, <laughs> And it's like, because... I'm a musician, <laughs> you know, because I'm addicted to making music because this is the life I want. I want to be able to feel something and then touch a keyboard and create how I feel like that's how I deal with things. And, and when you're, when you're young and you don't know that like there is that power to just pick up a pen and write how you feel and smooth out the, the edges of the cuts in your mind, like it's a powerful thing. And I think that's the process. Like when you when you start music, like it's just you're just doing surf, surface stuff. You're not really tapping into like who you really are. But it, it's when you start to realize, oh no, I can actually sing about things I'm really going through, and that's gonna like touch people's hearts. That when I did the Hopeless Heroic after Silver and Brains, it was so much better for me because it was like. I loved all the beats I made for Hopeless for Syllable and Brains. And I loved the funny, I loved being funny. And I do love still doing that stuff every now and then. But being able to make songs about real things, you know, like we'd, I'd, one of the first songs I wrote was about the life and times of the Washington sniper and the last few hours of his life. And then another song was about a kid in Papua New Guinea who was taking on American soldiers fighting off you know, an, Amer- an American army, you know, so like being able to like actually tap into the real world and then also tell my story through an album. Like, so I, I, I can't begrudge any of the negative because it's like out of that comes real story. And as a writer, you know, there's just I, the, the people that I've met, even outside of this, of my story and sense, like the people that I've met, the stories that I've seen and been a part of that isn't just even this story yeah. is like it's given me work for 50 years you know it's like i just be creating all the time you, you must you know? have people constantly coming back to you and saying for example this podcast but even on, from all around the world people saying tell me that story again i just don't get how you've done it well the crazy thing is, is like there's so many different ways to tell it as well like 
I've written a lot of different screenplays and stage plays. And like I've written a story which is just basically told from all of our best performances, the craziest performances, because there's a subtext that happens outside of those songs. And that's a really cool way to make a stage play, you know? Um, And so I've also done just experimenting with, um, I wrote a whole story called Ellie Underground, which is not my story, but I wrote it as a way to see how good I could write my story. But I wanted to deal with like fiction. I don't want to write my story because it's too much pressure to, to deal with reality. So I went away and I wrote an entire story based on what would happen to her if, if our story happened in America. And it was so much fun doing that, That's you know? Fun. So it's just all these cool things that you can do when you are, when you actually land in the place where it's like, I'm, I'm an artist. Like yeah. I, I, nothing limits me now you know, um, and it's given me a whole other career, like of understanding marketing. People come to me for advice in marketing. I train rappers now as well. I teach creative writing, like, um, and I, and I write and it's like a, it's a pretty much full time creative job. You know, like I, I never needed to go back and work in a call center or like never needed to do that. I just always decided I will make an, an entire life from, my art you know I'll, I'll i'll live crazy stories and i'll tell them you know and then, and so then it come true gavin you know that was my dream it was like when i was a kid i'd seen stuff like that and there's a thing that i've always been really close to my dreams because i've been a, i've been lucid dreaming since i was uh, very young and so i used to have extremely visual dreams sometimes i'd have dreams of people who died and then they did die um i saw i met bill in a dream before i met him and so that's one, one of the first w- reasons that I actually spoke to him is because I recognized him from a dream. I'd seen the dream of us playing on stage with M and D12. I'd seen that perfectly in a dream and I'd drawn it in a rhyme book. I'd drawn what, D, uh, what Brixton looked like before I was ever in Brixton Academy. So there's a weird relationship that I always had in my dreams that I have a dream. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to go. And it's going to be crazy. It's going to probably be so many bad decisions. <laughs> it's going to be so messed up. But the reality in that dream is going to come true. Whether that's a good thing, sure. maybe it's a nightmare. You know, I'm, at least I'm living the dreams. I, I, I think it's a mistake to want life to be easy. Yeah. I actually don't. Um, I have a thing now where uh, I, for a few years, I, I decided to have this thing just for me to be happy. Um, as someone who's kind of like a little bit of an anti-capitalist, I'm happy with making money and I can only make money if it's from art I've created, you know, like things I've written, things I've created with my own mind, then I'm happy to make money from it. And and that's kind of just my game that I play because I think it's so easy to go out and just... Do something. Part of that make is, money. is maybe you've been true to yourself because you've you've had this identity question hanging over you for so many years. This is exactly what you want to do, and you will do that going forward for the rest of your life. That's yeah, and I think as it's a person and as an artist. And I think it's being and it's um it's being honest with who you really are. You know, it's like I I've taken a road that's forced me to be all the different types of dishonest. That in a, a way that kind of reverse um, constructs you know, reverse engineers who you really are, you know, from all these different things. So you get to a point when you're, when you're constantly unhappy and you eventually go, that's why I'm unhappy. That's why I'm happy. Great. Okay. And you go, I'm never going to do that again. 
I'm going to only do my art. I'm going to, I'm choosing this now and I'm not going to come off. It doesn't matter if I die. It doesn't matter if I die broke. I'm going to only do this. Yeah. And there's something about when you just like, uh, anyone tr can try that. The day after they, they quit their job and they sit in their couch one, it'll be very scary. But there's a moment where you're like, wow, fuck. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm doing this now, you know? Totally. And th there's nothing, I don't, think there's anything more empowering to the human mind than that you know than to make that decision yeah the other day i like i learned something in music for the first time i've been doing music for like 20 years in production and in mixing that totally changed every the entire way i look at making music and since then i've just been having so much fun making music now it's like it's it's you still constantly learning as long as um there's a there's a the the bad way to look at getting better and becoming good in music is is that idea of I want to be the best. Yeah. That is the quickest slope to being shit. As soon as you think that you've got to where you, you got to a point where I'm I'm really good, you're now shit. That's the bottom line. As well, aren't you? Well, you can't go any further. That's yeah. the problem. Like, and also, so where you're at, where you're settling at now, where you're gonna you know rest your shield on. That's how good you want to be. Like for me, it is always like. Nah, I'm nowhere near it. And I think as long as you constantly look at it, like I can get so much better because there's so much out there that I don't know, sure. you know, like then you're always going to climb and it stops being about what anyone else is doing. Like, Oh, these guys are making this or, or like trends. Yeah. None of that matters because you're always going to learn more about yourself and then do it, you know? Mm. So I think that's the way to be like creatively content. And it's, a road that I'm on and I'm starting to feel pretty good about. You've obviously stayed in the creative industries and I think as much as it's a massive industry in itself, it, it's quite small in terms of a lot of people know each other, you know, and, and it's the same people that are kicking around each and time again. But did you feel that you ever burnt any, any bridges when, when you came away from that and you came out and you told the truth? Did you think, I can't really cross that line again, I can't work with them? Or did you feel that they almost admired you even more for it? I totally burnt bridges, but the, th <laughs> the thing about when you're an artist and you're going to do what you're going to do and you're going to keep, keep, keep doing it and you're just going to make music uh, or you're just going to write, you're just going to do it for the love of it, you, you're always going to win because yeah. the average job range of someone in A&R is six months. So six months and there's a new group of A&Rs, you know, so they just lose their jobs all the time. Like it's not a safe job working at a label, you know, especially with the industry the way it is. So like um, the worst thing that can, you probably could ever do is go to, to try and get a label deal, you know, just do your shit. And if they come, fine, they come, but like do your thing, you know, like they don't like anyone coming to them legally. They can't actually work with anyone who's coming to them. They have to come and find it. But um, it's just this idea, like when you're, when you're doing what you absolutely love, it's, it's, it doesn't matter about what, what others think there's been people at labels who have sure they've been like you know like so maybe sony as a company that at the top they might hear my story and be like no oh, that's the guy that fucked us over whatever but there's been so many people who have been at sony someone's offered a record deal before um for hopeless heroic there was offers from sony um other people who have been there have, have offered things because it's new people come in all the time and they don't really know or, or care what you know, and also I think the, the story's been told and it's not been told in a way of like Sony are the bad people or 
or any label of the bad people. It's it's the idea of like what the industry is built on. The industry is constantly behind the idea of what works and it constantly screws over its people. The same way as like when I went and did a major label book deal, should have learned from, you know, it's like these again, are they're, they're not writers. They're not people who understand what the, what the process of you're going to go through and, you know, digging a hole, digging everything out of yourself and putting on a page and doing draft after draft after draft. They're just going to turn around and be like, oh, no, we don't want this. Don't, don't talk about this part. It's too heavy up front. Don't, you know, it's like, that's my life you're telling me to take out there. You know, like that's what you talk, you know. So I think that almost comes back to why you've got this, you know, anti-capitalist outlook in life, because I think that a lot of the time in the industry that you've worked in, be it major label record labels or major label book uh, uh, book companies or so it's the people that are in the boardroom that are making these decisions that have never done yeah. the work on the ground you know so yeah, yeah. To tell you that your art is wrong yeah exactly and it's like it's the same thing with like um in theater and film and all these different places it's like it's this idea of um of the other person who's coming to you is always like a like a screenwriter will come to me and be like oh I'll t- I, I know how to write your story and, you, and you're like all right let's see what you can do and then it's, it's just it's just dreadful. Right. It's just it's your story. It's not their story. <laughs> it's like why you don't know anything about the story, right. and it's but but film companies, big film companies, um, a lot of them have, have come to me constantly. But big film companies, the major ones, will always come and be like, "Yeah, we want your deal, and uh, this person's going to write it." And they have no care about what the story is. They just wanted it. They just want it, you know. Um, and so it's it's constantly dealing when you're dealing in a kind of entertainment at a high level, you're constantly going to come across people who are, they got in because their fathers owned a company. Like they never, they never like grafted and understood, like that's who you really want to work with. You want to work with people who are also writers are also that they, they've, they've made their, done it. yeah. And they, and they understand the integrity of, of a great story, you know, like they, they know the art, the, what it takes structurally to make a great story. They, uh, for me, I, I can't understand how bad films get made or how bad things get made. And I can, I can understand it only from the point of view of seeing it, that there's people in the teams who, do, who don't know what, um, what is actually going to work for people, you know, and who then try to strip out the real and put in the kind of gloss. And that's when, you know, I think if you look at like something like uh, Fight Club, the, the gloss, there's no gloss. <laughs> there's no such thing as gloss. So and yet something, something so unreal as that ends up being so pertinently real, yeah. you know? Oh. So I think that's the, the difference is artists take this journey towards discovering what's really, who they really are. And that's the journey of any artist is like, use your art to find as therapy find out who you are yeah. and then eventually then tell your story and tell it in, in a beautiful way that like really represents the story for people but then then you got to find people to do that with and that's always you want to put your records out put it out yourself until someone comes in who's who's honestly understands the pain you go through same with books same with film it's like it's really being in this industry is like it's finding good people is the hardest thing, you know, honest, integral people. Just even some people would laugh as soon as they hear the words honest with entertainment <laughs> industry, you know. Yeah. But I've, that's the plight, you know, that I've been on. And luckily, I've met a lot of 
good people, you know. Where where are you now? You know, you, you've been through it all. You've had some journey in your life, Gavin. Where where are you as a person now? And is there anything that people should be looking forward from you in the future? Right now, I'm, I'm tr- trying so hard to get my right leg back. I'm doing physio every day. I still play football, and I haven't played football for 10 months, obviously because of the worlds and COVID, but I haven't been able to run or train. So it's weird that these little things that you need as an artist, I also use sport. I'll go and play football and then I'll come home and I'm just, it pours out of me because of like, you, you know, and as an addictive personality, I've removed a lot of the things that I've been addicted to with positive things like my art and like sport. And so football is one of those things. So all I'm trying to do right now, I mean, I've got so many cool things happening this year, but all I really want to do is be able to kick a ball around, you know, but um, other than that, like um, I'm working on my 11th album. I'm working on, an album telling the story along the beats of the film. Um, I'm working on a screenplay uh, that I that I'm, I just finished a draft. I've made a few, but I've found the way to tell the story eventually. And so I've uh, finished a really good uh, draft of that. I've got a lot of people that we're working with on um, state stage plays and, and video game. And like, there's so many things in this next year while I kind of just stay creative with music and uh, tell this story that it's just like it's a really cool creative time and in, then I, every now and then I'll just take breaks and write other stories and just try to be as much in the essence of who I am which is this you know dedicated writer and have as much fun doing that you know absolutely that's pretty much <laughs> that's pretty much my life right now and in the meantime also trying get to get through COVID um and see people god it's like it'd be so good to just see people again and just have a good laugh with people it looks like it's been a while doesn't it it certainly doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon it does it does look like a while i haven't seen i haven't been to scotland and i haven't seen my family in scotland for a while now like over maybe a year and a half and Jeez. so it's like it's it's real sad yeah totally gavin it's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you and, and thank you so much for speaking so open and honestly about your journey as well. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure that people uh, who haven't heard of Cellbone Brains will go and check out the, the film and, and the book as well and, and check you out on, on social media. Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere at Brains McLeod. I'm not, I'm not really on Twitter, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I actually don't really do uh, social media as much. Like I only really do it for promotion of like the story of music. But anyone can get me on Facebook um, and anyone can get me... Uh, on youtube at the brains mccloud I, I constantly put up new music on um youtube forward slash brains mccloud and syllable and brains i've like the whole entire catalog of like 10 albums is up on you know spotify as well so if you want to hear all the music <laughs> like the story kind of tells itself over 10 albums so go ahead and, and find that and then uh if anyone is really passionate about um music and learning how to do it and writing then they can hit me up as well brilliant that's thanks so much and, and thanks to everyone who's listened to or watched this episode of the dw podcast if you've not please like and subscribe and check out some previous episodes cheers <laughs>